Good morning. As Clayton said, my name is Logan Hobbs, and I'm the intern here at Calvary. Um, the last time, and only other time for that matter, that I preached, I was in the sixth grade. I was at summer camp in Wisconsin, and for some reason I mentioned to the camp counselor that I wanted to lead devotions that night. So that night I stood in front of my cabin and spoke about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the wedding feast, and the parable of the prodigal son. I don't know why, but for some reason I was just really into parables that summer. I don't remember what I said or how or if I even linked them all together, but I still haven't used the same Bible from back then so I can see all of the markings that I made. What I do remember is feeling this intense fear and dread as soon as I stood up in front of everyone. Um, my mouth got all dry and my hands were clammy and it felt like I was talking for hours on end, but after I finished down, I looked at my spiffy glow-in-the-dark watch, which I unfortunately lost, and saw that it had only been seven minutes. And while I'm sure that there are some who would be overjoyed at a seven-minute sermon, um, hopefully today's sermon will be a little bit longer than that. All this to say, I sincerely hope and pray that uh, my prayer and planning I put into this sermon today yields a more fruitful and coherent message than my whimsical decision years ago. And if I seem nervous, it's, it's because I am. <laughs> I also have water in case my mouth gets dry, which it does, so. So today I won't be talking about any parables. Instead, I have the wonderful opportunity to talk about a fairly well-known passage in 1 Corinthians. Many of you have probably heard this passage called the love passage, and it's often read at weddings, which makes sense. Because love is this wonderful emotion that we all strive to both give and receive in the Bible gives us many clear examples of what love truly is. Uh, when I was preparing this sermon, the first thing our associate pastor, Ben Henderson, told me was to tell some self-deprecating stories because apparently that works for him. And <laughs> lucky for you guys, I tend to act without thinking most of the time. So there's plenty of material for today's sermon. For example, um, I remember the first time that I fell in love which is a feeling that I'm sure many of us can remember, but unlike a lot of you, I was in kindergarten, um, and her name was Katie. Honestly, I couldn't tell you a thing about Katie today, except that she had brown hair, bangs, and she moved to Ohio after kindergarten, effectively breaking my young and vulnerable heart. But before she left, and because I loved her, I, I had to write it down in my journal. So I wrote, I love Katie, and I spelled Katie K-A-T-I-E-Y, because I wasn't the brightest kid, on a note in my room, and I stuffed it into my desk drawer. And naturally, my snooping sisters, Olivia and Elise, one of whom is very much so not looking at me right now, <laughs> found it and made fun of me for years to come and gave me the nickname Loverboy. <laughs> what I was feeling, obviously, was not love in its true, full form. Some might refer to this as puppy love or similar euphemisms. But I would argue that what I was feeling probably isn't too far off from the way that many people today do think about love. Katie gave me the warm fuzzies, and I probably thought she was pretty, so I equated those two things with love. However, that's clearly not how we as Christians should view love. I mean, if we were all to go off of a kindergarten's definition of love, all of us guys would still be running around pulling girls' hair, and the girls would be, I don't really know, they would probably be making up rhymes involving the words Jupiter and Stupider. 
So assuming we no longer want to act like children, which Paul points to in the latter part of this chapter, what should a mature Christian-rooted love look like? In this passage, Paul lays out an excellent model for what Christian love should look like, but some of his stipulations do seem almost impossible to fully follow. He makes it clear that love is greater than any other gift or attribute that anyone can have. Love is greater than anything else. It's imperative in all that we do. Today, we're also going to talk not only about love itself, but also how we should go about developing a love that is representative of Christ and how that love can relate to our spiritual gifts. But first, to understand what Paul means when he says love, we need to first take a look at the original Greek that Paul used, which I know that some people love doing and others not so much. I happen to fall into that first group because I'm a nerd and I work with a couple of people like myself, so just bear with me for a few minutes if you fall into the latter group. And for those of you in Clayton's Sunday School this morning, I am sorry that you have to hear this twice. So throughout this chapter, Paul uses the Greek word agape for what's translated into English as love. However, this is only one of the four words that are commonly translated into love today that the Greeks used, which when you think about it does make a little bit more sense, and I wish that we had something like that today. But I guess if you did want to go with the kindergarten definition of love, you do sort of have a three-level hierarchy. You have like, and then you have like-like, which is more than like, but not enough as love, and then, and then you have love. But since we have collectively decided that we are beyond kindergarten-level rhetoric, uh, we are going to dive into how the Greeks define love. The first one that we're going to talk about is eros. Eros is a love that refers to this baseline need for sexual gratification or emotional gratification, and it's all focused inward, and it's about satisfying yourself and getting what you want out of a situation. Unsurprisingly, this type of love does not appear in the New Testament at all. Another type of love is storge. Storge is the type of love that's generally felt between members of a family. It's a love that evokes feelings of devotion and dedication for one another, that often stems from a natural or instinctual affection. This type of love is mentioned in the New Testament a few times. Philia is another type of love which you might be familiar with, and philia is the love that describes the affection felt between individuals who are close, regardless of whether or not it's a romantic relationship. In Aristotle's work on ethics, he often, philia is often translated simply as friendship. This love carries the idea of two people feeling compatible, well-matched, and complementary to each other. But again, it doesn't have to be used just for that romantic context. The final and most used word for love in the New Testament is agape. And agape is the love of God. Agape is used to describe the love that is both of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. It is the highest level of love, and there is nothing more excellent or pure than agape love. This is the type of love that allows a father to send his only son as a sacrifice to save all of humankind. This type of love is actually in almost direct contrast to the sappy, sentimental, surface-level feelings portrayed in many romantic comedies. God loves us, ugly sinners though we may be, because it is his very nature. And it is only because God first loved us that we are able to love others. Agape love, as modeled through Christ, is not based on these warm, fuzzy feelings that we often get, but rather it's a determined act of the will of God a joyful resolution to put the wellness of others before yourself, 
Agape love involves dying to your own selfish desires every day in order to raise others up. And we see this type of love in every action that Christ did while he was here on earth. Whether it be healing the sick, teaching, feeding the hungry, or even throwing the money changers out of the temple. And agape love shined forever bright with his willingness to take our place on the cross so that we can have eternal life in him. 1 John 4, 8 gives us a wonderful vision as to the nature of God. It states that whoever does not love, and that's the word agape there, does not know God because God is agape. This perfect being who created all and is in all has a nature that is so incredibly intertwined with agape love that it is perfectly true to say that God is love. Not God is loving, which is also true, but that God is love. That's a beautiful image to have, I think. Now, with this definition of agape love in mind, reading this passage can be an extremely profound experience. Essentially, it gives us a plethora of examples of what true agape love should look like. Agape is patient and kind. Agape does not boast, and agape is not proud. Agape is not rude, self-seeking, or easily angered. Agape keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Agape always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. What's more, because of the transitive property of equality, which those are some big words, so we're going to go over this real quick. This won't be too long of a math lesson, so please stick with me if you're not math-minded. So we learned about this in like middle school or high school, but it's, it's this really simple geometry property. So if A equals B and B equals C, then what does A equal? Good job, all of you people who said C. So it's pretty simple. So off of the transitive property of equality, if we say that God is agape, which is true, and that Jesus is God, which is also true, then we can conclude that Christ is agape, which then allows us to view the passage in yet another light. Essentially, it just describes who Christ is. Christ is patient, kind, humble, respectful, selfless, and calm. Christ keeps no record of wrongs. Christ doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Christ always trusts, hopes, perseveres. Christ never fails. In the message, uh, Paul also makes it clear that love has a direct relation to spiritual gifts. From the founding context in this letter, we can see that the church at Corinth was going through a trying time concerning how they were both viewing and using their spiritual gifts. And Paul addresses these issues effectively by pointing out that the gifts themselves don't matter as much as the intentions behind the usage of these gifts. Tongues, prophecies, faith, and even generosity are all comparatively meaningless without love. This reminds me of an example. I have a friend, and we're going to call her Jen. Jen is a great person. I love hanging out with Jen, and she's fun to be around. But there was this one time in high school where at the last minute, because someone else dropped the ball, um, Jen and I were put in charge of running the soundboard for an extended amount of time for a guest speaker that was coming into the school that night. I don't know if you guys know this, but running sound is not an incredibly um, interesting activity when there's just one guy who's talking for two hours. It honestly wasn't even a two-person job, which only contributed to Jen's anger and probably mine too, if I'm being real honest. But I've never seen a person so spitefully adjust dials and sliders, but that's what Jen did for the whole time. Luckily, we were in the back of the gym, so no one could hear her furiously punching the spacebar to advance the PowerPoint. 
And looking back now, it seems ridiculous to be so angry about using your talents to help others. But then again, at the same time, I still get upset when I'm asked to serve when I may not necessarily want to. And in case you were wondering, me speaking with you all today is not one of those situations. <laughs> it's so easy for me to often say and become prideful, self-centered, and give myself a pat on the back just for doing the right thing. Sometimes it even feels as if I'm just checking off boxes on my Be a Good Christian Today checklist. Read my Bible in the morning, check. Listen to Christian music on the way to school, sometimes check. Pray before meals, check. With that mindset, it's easy to see how simple it could be to become caught up in our gifts or even take them for granted. It's because of this that I think Paul points out the correlation between spiritual gifts and love. I would wager that it is much easier to be in touch with our spirituality when we are more mindful on, of working on evoking the fruit of the spirit, especially love, in our day-to-day -day lives. So how do we develop agape? If it is, in fact, as important as Paul believes it to be, it should permediate every facet of our lives and be involved in everything that we do. I think a great way to see if you're on track is to simply replace the word love in this passage with your name. Because we are supposed to be like Christ, which the transitive property of equality allows this sort of. So we should be showing agape in the same way as the, passion, as the passage describes it. It's a good self-check. Is Logan patient? Is Logan kind? And so on. Obviously, you would use your own name there. That would be weird. If you're anything like me, this does not exactly make you feel good about yourself. If you know me at all or have ever been in a car while I'm driving, as both Ben and Clayton and many of my other friends can probably attest to, I am very much so not a patient person, and I am so easily angered. <laughs> there have been times where I've gotten angry or jealous because of someone receiving credit for work that I've done, so I'm a long way off from being selfless, too. There have even been times where I've been upset because a friend was in the spotlight because of something that they had accomplished. Jealousy runs rampant and is a cruel master, to be sure. Thankfully, however, God is constantly making all things new. Through his spirit in me, I am constantly challenged in my decisions and actions every day. Some of those days are good, and I feel like I'm actually doing kind of well. And then other days, I feel as if it's this constant two-step forward, one-step-back kind of thing. And then other days, I marvel at the fact that God could ever even choose to love an ugly sinner like myself. And it's almost unfortunate that it takes so many of those bad days for me to realize how far I'm going from God. But he's never the one moving away. He stays the same. It's always me straying off the path and getting lost, fighting to find my way back. Agape is not this this light, easy concept to understand. And a lot of the time, I think that agape love is more comparable to what we may refer to as tough love today. Um, a definition that Clayton used to give all the time in youth group was that love is looking out for another's highest good. He asked us what the definition of love was so much, in fact, that uh, my older sister, when no one else would be willing to answer, she would sigh and begrudgingly raise her hand, and it went something like this. 
Love is looking out for another's highest good, Clayton. I don't know if you could see, but I rolled my eyes about 12,000 times there, which is, of course, ironic. But that definition of agape shows simply how we should situate ourselves relative to others. You can't truly love a person and not want them to be different. You cannot truly love a person and not want them to be different unless that person is already acting in the perfect likeness of Christ, in which case they should definitely be up here instead of me. Of course, God wants us to love others. That's the easy part, saying it, but doing it is another thing. In today's hostile culture, are we really prepared to love everyone? Because everyone does mean everyone. You don't get to pick and choose. It doesn't mean only those that you agree with. It doesn't mean only those with the same political leanings as yourself. It doesn't mean only when others are watching, and it certainly doesn't mean only when you're in the mood to show love. Love is a demanding, full-time job, and it is hard. But through constantly being aware of our thoughts and actions and a lot of practical real-life practice, I think that it can become secondary nature. Eventually, you may even be able to graciously acknowledge that the person who just cut you off in traffic may have simply been unaware that you were there and did not have a malicious intent to ruin your day. I'm not there yet. <laughs> but I pray that someday I might be there. And I know that God is constantly working in me and in all of us, molding and shaping us to be a better representation for his ever-abundant agape on this earth. So, with the knowledge of what love is and examples of how to feel and show it, I pray that we are all able to constantly be working on showing the love of Christ to others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you today for being a loving and gracious God. Thank you for offering us forgiveness and the gift of new life in you. We pray today that our lives would be filled and overflowing with the power of your love so we can make a difference in this world and bring honor to you. We ask for your help in reminding us that the most important things are not what we do outwardly, but that the most significant thing we can do in this life is simply to love you and to show your love to others. Help us to love as you love. Fill us with your spirit so that we can choose what is best. We are weak, Lord, but we know that even when we are weak, you are strong within us. Thank you for equipping us to face each day with the power of your love, your forgiveness, and your grace. We love you, Lord, and we need you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.